this week we are starting a, a series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, so I'm going to read uh, out of a couple of places in the Bible. One, I'm going to read the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. And then I'm going to read Jesus talking about the commandments in the Gospel of Matthew. So you can flip back and forth if you'd like. And I'll just tell you, if you're going to be here for more of the weeks of this series, we're going to read the Ten Commandments again and again and again. In my experience, uh, a lot of people don't actually know the Ten Commandments. They know that they exist, but they don't know what they are, couldn't say them, and couldn't, certainly couldn't say them in order from memory. So uh, maybe we'll get there. It's just trying to help, help you out. So this is one of the two places where you can find the Ten Commandments uh, is in Exodus chapter 20. This is the first place you can read it in the Bible. So Exodus chapter 20, starting at the first verse. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's number one. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's number two. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's number three. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's number four. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That's number five. You shall not judge. You shall not murder. Six, you shall not commit adultery. Seven, you shall not steal. Eight, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Nine, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. That is is the 10th commandment. And then from Matthew chapter 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this word spoken to us. And God, I pray that our, our spirits would be receptive to your word, that our ears would hear rightly, that our hearts would be open, and that we would see you through your word. God, help me to speak alongside you, under you, under the power of the Holy Spirit, and not against you, that your name would be glorified here and in our lives. Amen. Um, 
The law is good, actually. Um, I think that probably that's, that's the place I would like to start. I, I grew up in church. I think a lot of people here grew up in church. And uh, I, I got kind of a message that the law is bad. The law is something that we're kind of done with, we're over with, and thank God, because it's really a big pain. And Jesus came, so we don't have to worry about the law anymore, and, and now we really don't have to think about that yucky thing, which is the law of God. And the, the problem with that is like the whole Bible. Uh, Jesus, first of all, himself does not say, you know what's terrible? The law. In fact, he explicitly, in his most famous teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he comes right out and says, I did not come to abolish the law. I did not come to erase the single smallest piece of punctuation. But I came to fulfill the law. And then he goes on to teach on the law. He uses the law to bring forth his own vision of what it means to have a good life with and under God. Jesus himself affirms the law over and over and over again. We somehow get a message uh, that the law is bad because we hear Paul in the epistles say some things that we remember like half of. And then we say the law is bad because it sounds like Paul is saying the law is bad. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying the law has a purpose, and the purpose of the law was painful, and the purpose of the law was difficult, and the law does something to you. It does something upon you. And if you think the law is the answer to the problem, that is bad. That is not the truth. But the law itself is not bad. It's when you misuse the law or you misunderstand the law. And a lot of times what's happened for people like me, maybe people like you who grew up in a church, is we took part of that message and said, the law is bad. It's no good. We're free from the law in general. We don't have to pay attention to the law. So then when we open up, for example, uh, Psalm 119, which we heard from. And it says things like, the law of the Lord is good. It's a delight. It's, it's life-giving. We're like, no, incorrect. That's weird. The Bible has gotten this one wrong. The Bible is actually not disagreeing within itself. So you should be able to, as a Christian, open your Bible, read Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, the longest chapter in the Bible, the longest dedication, dedicated meditation on the law. And over and over and over hear it saying the law is good. And you should also be able to affirm somehow that the law is good. The law is not opposed to what we call grace. Because Christians believe that we are right with God not based upon our obedience to the law, which is true, but upon grace, which is also true. But following Jesus is not merely a thing that you do with your mind. It is a thing that happens with your life. And Jesus is not opposed to our whole body, mind, soul, and strength being taken up in following after him 
In fact, he very specifically says, you can't say with your mouth that you know me and then do whatever you want with your life. He says, at the last day, there will be many who call me Lord, Lord. And Jesus will look at them and say, I never knew you. Because you didn't listen to what I said. It meant no difference to your life. And the law is actually working in conjunction, oftentimes, with what Jesus teaches. Jesus is not offering an alternative to the law. He is the best teacher of the law. He's showing us what the law actually means. So what we're going to do this whole series is we're going to read the Ten Commandments, and we're going to read them with the help of Jesus, because Jesus is the best teacher of the law. Now, the Ten Commandments, they are not all that the law is. They stand at the, the head of the law. If you don't know what's going on in this passage in Exodus, the people of Israel have just gotten rescued out of Egypt, delivered by miracle of the God of Israel. They brought to Mount Sinai in an event that Israel remembers every year at Pentecost. They arrive at Sinai and they uh, receive the first telling of the law through Moses. They're gathered around this mountain and this is actually spoken directly to the people of Israel, this part, from the mountain down to all the Israelites who otherwise can't get close to them. This is the first time, you know, the story of Israel is... We've already gone through a whole book of the Bible and half of another one. This is the first time God has given them any sort of commandments, really. They've had one, just to circumcise their, their male sons, and that's really it. This is the first time, after hundreds of years, of what it might look like to follow the God of Abraham and what it looks like in their daily life. And it, it tells us these ten words. This is what it really reads as in Hebrews. These are ten words of what it should look like to, to follow the God of Israel. And it begins with a description of what God has done for them. And this is important because the, the format, the, the structure of what's going on in the law, including the Ten Commandments, is that God is presenting to them basically a, a, a covenant contract Moses, as he's writing this, as he's telling this, as God is speaking this, it is taking on the form of what it looks like when a king has taken over a people. And the first thing the king does in telling them what now the terms of their arrangement is, is first he says, this is who I am, and this is the basis upon which I am telling you what to do. And all of the law takes on that format. This is a king who has conquered them. And he is outlining the terms of their relationship now in this covenant relationship. And he says, this is why you should listen to me. I am the God who has rescued you out of Egypt. This is who I am. And this is how you, this is why you ought to listen. Christians, I don't know if you, you know this, Christians disagree with one another about how to list the Ten Commandments. If you're Lutheran or Catholic, the way that I counted the Ten Commandments doesn't make sense to you. And if you're 
Protestant or you grew up in an Orthodox church, you are shocked that somebody else doesn't count it the same way as you do. We're sticking with the Protestant and Orthodox way. The commandment that is first gives is you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. It's really, it's really interesting the way that the God of Israel speaks to, to Israel here and to us is because he's speaking to the whole nation. He's speaking to all the gathered Israelites, but he really personalizes the commandments. He's speaking to each individual person. He's not generally saying, you all, all of you guys, you shall have no other gods before me. He is pointing, in essence, at each individual who hears and says, you, personally, you individual, you shall have no other gods before me. People, as they uh, think about the Ten Commandments, maybe they talk about the Ten Commandments, people think they understand what the Ten Commandments say. You know, uh, there's, there's all kinds of fights about where the Ten Commandments should be posted and should they be posted here or not posted here. And also non-religious people think they know what the Ten Commandments say. And they're like, religion is unnecessary. We all agree on the Ten Commandments. Is the Ten Commandments really that special? Who doesn't, who's not against murder? You know, that, that, that kind of idea. The, the truth is the content of the Ten Commandments, especially right here from the beginning, is very particularly religious. This is not a thing that all people agree upon. The God of Israel is very particular in saying, you, actually not everyone will agree on this principle, or the next one, or the next one, or the next one. You will have no other gods before me. He is absolutely singular in his demands. Now, we have to kind of flip how we think about what law is. You and I live in a place and a time where you have a vote, you have the ability to write petitions to the government for those things to be voted upon, for laws to be changed. Laws are basically optional items that you and I can erase and rewrite, often for the good. We've had terrible laws on our books. We, we are glad that those laws have been rewritten, but we think that this law is like that law. And so then when we come to the Ten Commandments and we hear God saying, you shall have no other gods before me, it seems like some invisible person has made an arbitrary decision out of their own personal need or wants and has put this rule out into the world. And so other people come in, and you could be Christian or not Christian, and you could feel like, as a person from that kind of culture, and say, well, what if that just wasn't the rule? We could just not have that rule. You know what I'm saying? Like, he could just decide you can have however many gods you want. Why? It seems pretty needy, you know, for him to have decided this particular rule. It's kind of lame. But that is not our understanding of what the law is. This law is not an arbitrary set of rules written out into the world to sort of push you 
into a pattern and code of behavior that some invisible person or a culture has decided is the best way of being. What we're saying is that this God is the real God, the one that actually exists, not the one that is a theory, not as, not as one that is uh, adopted by other people, not one that goes by different names. This is the real God. He's the God who actually has put himself into the middle of history. He has rescued Israel out of Egypt. He's that kind of God. He's the God. And when he gives law, he is not forcing upon reality the way that he wants things to be. He is describing the way things actually are. So that when you hear him say, you shall have no other gods before me, he is not stating his personal preference. He is telling you, you were made for one God. You were made for this singular God. That he actually is a person that forms a singularity of relationships with people. And you were actually and truly formed as a human being to be in relationship and in worship and subjection to one particular God. And so you are not being deprived of options. You are being described the way that has been prescribed in your very creation. That you as a person are meant to worship this God and when you don't worship this God, you wander into a way of not being human that is deeply destructive for you and for all of humanity. This is not about personal preference. This is not about I particularly like this God. From this perspective, this is not about preference. This is about reality. Because you were made only for this God. You shall have no others before me. What is a God? What is a God? We, we have all kinds of ideas attached to what does it mean to have gods. Martin Luther helpfully just describes it as a God is to wherever you turn with your hopes and your fears. A God is wherever you turn with your hopes and fears, hoping that they will ultimately solve those things. Peter Lightheart, a theologian, today says a God is the voice in your head that you actually obey. Not the one that you say that you obey, but the one that you actually obey. If, if the God of the Bible, the real God, the voice of the commandments would say, tells you to do something, but you do not the voice in your head that pushes you and tells you not to, that's a God in your life. And the inverse works. 
When the real God tells you not to do this, but you do exactly that thing, that is the God that lives in your mind. And the God of Israel says, you are not meant for shared relationship with all of these other kinds of false divinities. You were made for relationship with him. And that is why the heart of the law is not obedience. It is not earning God's pleasure towards you. This is not what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22 is, part, is mostly not innovation. When, when they ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he answers that you shall love the Lord your God. He is quoting the law. He is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is a chapter after the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. And all of Israel understands and agrees upon that answer. They're surprised when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's kind of new. But when Jesus says the heart of the law, the greatest commandment, is that you will love the Lord your God with all that you are, both, both the people immediately listening, all of Israel ever, they all nod their heads because this is what they have been taught for the entirety of their lives. And what we miss, the God who would give you the Ten Commandments and give you the law, is not just looking at you and trying to press down a cookie cutter of constraint around you. He is inviting you into the fullness of a life of love. So the summary of what the law is, is that you should be a lover of God. And love becomes the determinative principle of your life. It is the thing that defines you so that you from the inside out are consumed with love for this God. You were made for that kind of love. This is the beauty of what the law is doing from the very beginning, clearing out all the clutter and underbrush of your life. Because as you begin to think upon and reflect upon what the God of Israel is saying in this first commandment, that you will not have other gods before me, the horizons of what this means explodes open. You, you both are convicted and invited at the same time. Because the truth is, I have lots of other gods in my life. The list of things that I meditate upon more than this God is very, very long. I, I am driven by, by the rule of lots of other gods in my life. When I spend my time anxious and worrying about things that don't exist, I, in one moment, in my own anxiety, probably worrying about my children, worrying about my wife, probably and demonstrating my own extra exaltation of my own family above the Lord my God and myself. Because what do I really want in my anxiety? Control. I exalt my own ability to arrange and control my circumstances so that if I was just with them at all times, where we would drive everyone crazy, 
But if I was somehow able to be with them at all times in all spaces and I could be absolutely in control of their health and their, their emotional circumstances and their school success, then everything would be fine. Because what do I really, really worship and love in that moment? I worship me and my own power and comfort and control. And that is incredibly convicting. Because I love my wife and my children, which is a good thing. I want to do good to them and for them. That is a good thing. And what I intrinsically and habitually do is turn in my heart, turn that up to 11, and turn it upon myself. And I am, I am trapped by my own love of theoretically good things. God's... Gods, I was not meant to worship. Gods, I was not meant to be in obedience to. These gods that feel so good and so right in that moment are gods I freely choose in violation of this commandment. And they are the gods that enslave me. Because this is the truth that the law is telling you in the very first commandment. Every other God comes for your slavery. But the only God, the Lord your God, he came to set you free from slavery. He is the only God that will free you. Every other God will bury you in your shackles. The shackles that you choose, the prison of your own pleasure. But this God came to set you free. You were made for love. It is not because God is needy. It is not because God is insecure. It is not because God needs more friends in his life that he is commanding you and me to worship him and worship him alone. He is telling you this because he loves you. And this is the way that you were actually made to be in the world. If God did not tell you to only worship him, he would abandon you to your own choice, to my own choice, which would destroy us, which would be an act of hate. God does not hate you. God loves you. And because God loves you, he tells you this commandment. You shall only have one God. It is me that you should worship because you were made for love, because you were made for freedom, because he comes to set you free. He gives you this commandment. Worship him alone. And I am a commandment breaker. I break this commandment time and again. My affections are so small. My love is so cold. I am so frail in my feeble, feeble attempts at loving and serving God. I am so fickle. I am so distractible. I can hear this first commandment and stop there before I break all the other ones because I can't even get this first one right. I choose slavery in my heart over and over and over and over and over again. And here is the good news. Jesus is not just coming to confirm what the law proclaims. 
Jesus is coming to deliver you from what the law exposes. Because Jesus is the real and true son of Israel. The one that hears the commandments singularly and individually pointed at each and every one of us. And he is the one who faithfully hears the commandment that you shall have this one God. And he faithfully obeys. The long history of Israel's relationship to the law is a history of failure until Jesus. When the real Israelite truly and faithfully obeys so that until the very end of his life, at the cost of his own suffering, he says, not my will, but yours be done. The things that ensnare me, he faces and he obeys. He relinquishes the control that I crave. He surrenders. He refuses the God of safety's siren song. He is not turned aside by any other voice, but hears the voice of his Father and he obeys. So that then the way is open for me. So that now when Pentecost comes, I don't just remember the God who speaks from Sinai. I remember the God who climbs a different hill, puts himself on a cross, and enters into the darkness of my own destructive slavery to sin so that I would be freed. I, I cannot, I have never been able to fully and perfectly obey this law or any other. But the beauty of the gospel is the God of Israel does not just provide diagnosis for you in the law. He is still and he will always be the God who first says, I am the God who comes to deliver you from slavery. He stepped into history and he does it time and time and time again for all of his people now and always. You were made for this God and this God alone. A singularity of love and worship around which you were created to live your life. And your frailty, your slavery was known to him. And instead of just viewing you as a commandment breaker, one that he is perpetually impatient with, that he's over with, that he is disgusted by. He enters himself into the story to do what he's always done, to be himself now and always, the God who sets his people free. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. 
the, the demand of the law is so high, is so penetrating, is so difficult. And you should feel how you have failed the law. That's the point of the law, is that you would see what has always been there simmering underneath the surface. But you are meant to hear that and see that fulfilled and spoken by Jesus. So if your hope has been in your own perfect obedience, the law is prying apart your hands and freeing you of the delusion of self-determination so that you would open up your arms and receive from the gift of God's grace and mercy for you. And day after day, when you feel that, that you have failed, you are meant to hear the ringing prelude of the law. I am the Lord who comes to deliver you from slavery. He is coming to do that for you. Put your hope in Jesus rather than yourself. And if today you do not follow Jesus, You've ended up in this church for one reason or another. Maybe you've come and you've heard words like this for a long time. Maybe you've been a church attender for a long time, but you have not heard the voice of Jesus telling you where life is like this before. And Jesus is speaking to you. You were not made for all these other gods. You were made for him. The immensity of his love for you is so much better than any of the gods that you carry in your head. And no matter how far you have fallen away as a commandment breaker today, the God of the Pentecost would come down from the mountain and offer to you the dwelling of his own spirit inside of the temple of your life because of the work of Jesus. The God of Israel has come for you because that's who he is and that's what he does and he will never change. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but instead come home to love in the person of Jesus now and always. He will always be himself towards you and it's exactly who you were made for. Let me pray for us. Living God, I'm so grateful that you are not just an idea, you're not a preference, you're not a choice, you are you, real and true and alive. And God, I pray that we would be confronted with you and that we would see the limitations of our own gods, the gods we regularly reach for and choose time and time again. Father, would you forgive us for all of our dalliances, for all of our inclination towards slavery. God, I pray that you would, you would help us. You would rescue us. You would deliver us. Whether, whether we've been following you for a long time or whether we've never followed you at all, our, our need is the same, that you would rescue us and that you would deliver us. And I thank you that that is who you are. That is just the person that you have always been. 
Father, may the hearts of your people be exposed. And may we see really starkly in the daylight where all these other gods are that we cling to and hold on to and, and worship and protect. God, I pray that I pray those other gods would be cleared out of our life over and over and over again, that you would continue just pulling weeds out of our hearts and we would grow in the freedom of love for you. And Father, I pray for those who don't yet follow you. I pray that they would see really and clearly the, the ways that they have worshipped every god but you. And every one of those other gods, even when they deliver pleasure, is seeking to enslave them. And God, I pray that they would see that they were made for you. They were made for love. They were made to be lovers and to be loved. Father, may, may we be people who are consumed by the reality that you made us for. Loving you and being loved by you. Jesus, I thank you for your perfect obedience, for your perfect humanity that opens a way for us to be the kind of humans we were meant to be. We trust you that by the power of your Holy Spirit and your own faithfulness, you will complete the work that you've begun in us. You are the commandment keeper, commandment fulfiller. You are the rescuer of our souls now and always. And in you, our hopes rest and are secure. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.